All right, you are going to need a Bible tonight. And our passage is going to be 1 Samuel 1 and 2. We'll look at a few other verses in the neighborhood there, but mostly we're going to be right there in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. We're going to talk about Hannah. If you just search her name in a concordance or in a Bible software type program, uh, those are the only two chapters where you're going to find it, is 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2. So she is our focus this evening. I don't know if you've noticed, my guess is that you have, just about everyone and everything has its own day or its own month now. If you just look up, today is the national day for what? You'll probably find it's the national day for something. Or if you look up, this is the the national month for something. uh, You'll certainly find many things in each month. And so we're in March. And I just did some looking around this week to see what is March the national month for. And so let me just share with you a few things that you may or may not be aware of. Right out of the gate, you're going to like March is Hexagonal Awareness Have you ever got on the internet and just been so surprised by something that you just go down a black hole of craziness and then you just wake up 30 minutes later and say, what am I doing? This is silly. There's a website for Hexagonal Awareness. They want you to be aware of hexagons and their importance and their value. And uh, Hunter came in my office, you know, the youth are are tracking with us through this study, and so I give Hunter my notes, and we sort of talk about things, and he said, hexagonal awareness, did you go to that website? And I said, I went to it, so maybe you'd like to go to it, and you can be more aware of hexagons this month. Next, this is National Athletic Training Month, so when we're done, we're going to run a few laps around the church. We're going to line up out in the front parking lot, and uh, we'll time you and see how good you are. In the same vein, March is also, this I guess seems to fit, National Nutrition Month. So I hope you were pretty good on your carbs today and you didn't eat too much or eat too much sugar or whatever. March is also National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And I know that you wanted to know that. I know that, you know, that's just, you're ready, you're, you're, right now you're getting your phone out and typing in a reminder, I need to make an appointment to make sure... Everything's good. March is also kidney month. I just put that up there since it was in the the vein of health issues. March is also Irish American Heritage Month. So some of you guys may have Irish heritage or gals may have Irish heritage. This is your month. It's just for you. You probably didn't even know that. Irish American Heritage Month. Next is Women's History Month. And I bet you've heard something about that over the last couple of weeks. A little bit of history on this. Uh, Women's History Month began as a week. It was a week first. You only got a week, so you've really upgraded uh, over the years. Uh, Congress came around and said, no, we're going to make March Women's History Month. That started in 1982. Since 1995, every president since 95 has issued some sort of proclamation for Women's History Month. And uh, according to... Tradition, March 8th is actually Women's History Day, so we've already passed that. You're running on fumes, and your month is almost over, but March 8th is your, your actual day. 
And uh, maybe you've seen things on TV, commercials, or heard things on the radio about Women's History Month and certain programs uh, being promoted or whatever. Tonight, we're going to talk about a woman who really does deserve to be remembered. If you were going to say Women's History Month, who should we celebrate? Who should we remember? Who should we... If you, if you could say this cautiously, put on a pedestal and want to emulate, Hannah would be one of those women. And Hannah was one of the names on the list a few months back when we distributed the, the list to you and you got to vote, who, do we, who are we going to talk about? I wasn't going to tell you this on the front end, but there was a very small group of people that if they had not been voted for, we would have rigged the election so that they would have been, there would have been tampering. And Hannah would have made it one way or another because I wanted to talk about Hannah. These two chapters are two of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And uh, because her story is short, we'll get to read through the whole thing and sort of talk about most of what what we see in 1 Samuel here. We'll begin with this quote taken from a, a commentary on 1 Samuel. In this section, the Lord demonstrates his absolute power over all human institutions By changing the course of Israel's history through one of Israel's weakest and least significant individuals, a rural, barren woman named Hannah. Hannah was a woman of faith. In fact, Hannah is portrayed as the most pious woman in the Old Testament. Here she is shown going up to the Lord's house. No other woman in the Old Testament is mentioned doing this. In addition, Hannah is the only woman shown making and fulfilling a vow to the Lord. She is also the only woman who is specifically said to pray. Her prayer is also among the longest recorded in the Old Testament. Furthermore, her prayer includes the most recorded utterances of Yahweh's name by a woman, and there's 18 of them. So that's a pretty impressive list of things. And you can see the contrast in Hannah where he starts off saying she is one of the weakest, least significant individuals in all of Israel, a rural barren woman, and yet her legacy is one that we look back and remember uh, well. So let's put it in the the context of the Old Testament so we can fit this in the overall storyline. We're in the period of the Judges. So that means the people have already been brought out of Egypt. Moses has already led them out. God's given them his law. There's been this 40-year period where they don't get to enter the promised land. They have to wander around while the older generation dies. And then Joshua leads the new generation in. And they fight for the land. And they take most of it. They fight in the north. And they fight in the south. And everyone kind of divides up the land. And they go to their inheritance. And we find ourselves in the period uh, of the judges. There isn't a king yet. We're just right on the heels of Saul becoming the first king. We're right at the end of this period of the judges. And so there's a few verses I just want to draw your attention to. And uh, they're listed there on your notes. The first one is 1 Samuel 7, 6. You might just flip over and look at that. I just want to talk to you about Samuel briefly. We're going to talk about Samuel later, a few weeks down the road. But by talking about Samuel, it helps us place Hannah in the storyline and figure out what's going on. So if you look at 1 Samuel 7, verse 6, it says, They gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
And if you keep reading, in that same chapter, verse 15, 16, 17, talks about Samuel judging the people. So that's where we get the idea that Samuel was one of the last judges. So in your brain, you think, okay, the period of the judges. Well, that would be the book of Judges, and that's correct. That falls during the period of the judges. But even when that book ends, you pick up two more judges in 1 Samuel. First comes Eli. We're not going to really talk about him. He's just a worthless guy and really worth forgetting. But Eli was a judge. And then next is Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And Samuel leads us right into the monarchy. So in a way, Samuel is sort of a transitional figure, right? He's right on the end of one of these major epics in Israel where the period of the judges is coming to an end. Samuel is the very last one. And after Samuel, there's no more judges and we move into the monarchy. A few other things. I'm going to let you look these verses up. But in the book of Acts and in the book of Hebrews, we read that Samuel was also a prophet. He's described as a prophet. So all of this is going to come back up when we think about how does Hannah point us to Jesus. But I just want you to track with me. Samuel, her son, functions as a judge, sort of as the, the leader the de facto king, if you could almost call him that. He functions as a prophet. And we also read, as Samuel goes on to interact with Saul, he functions as a priest. Because you may remember there's a story where Saul gets in trouble for jumping the gun and offering the sacrifices himself. And Samuel says, no, buddy, buddy, that, you're the king. That's not your job. You should have waited for me to get here to offer the sacrifices. So just file this away in your brain. Hannah's son, he functions as a judge. The New Testament calls him a prophet. And he also functions, as we read through the Old Testament, as a priest. So that's sort of the the context set for Hannah when we look at who her son was. Look at the book of Judges. I know we've looked at this several times. I just want you to read it again. Just so you feel the weight of how bad things were in Samuel's day. This introductory paragraph in Judges just summarizes what the whole period of the Judges was like. Look at Judges 1.11. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. Who had brought them out of the land of Egypt? They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And as you read through this book, you know the pattern. It's just a cycle of the people rebelling, God punishing them through oppressors. They cry out, and he raises up a judge. Most of the judges are lousy individuals, and then things on the backside of the judge just get worse. And it happens over and over and over again, and that's life. During the period of the judges. And then, if you're tracking through the storyline, you come to the book of Ruth. And I just want to remind you of Ruth 1.1. The book of Ruth begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. 
And initially we read about a tragedy for this family, but by the end of the book of Ruth, which we've already talked about on a Wednesday night, we realize that even in the darkest day, even when things were falling apart all across Israel, God hadn't forgotten about his people. They had forgotten about him. They were provoking him. They had abandoned him, but God hadn't ultimately abandoned them, and he was still at work. And he was at work through Naomi and through Ruth and through the tragedies that happened in their life. And God was working for his glory and for the good of his people in a small way, in a quiet way, in something that most people didn't notice at all. God was still at work for his glory and for the good of the people. So when you flip the page from Ruth to 1 Samuel, you realize we're tracking right now in this same period, this period of the judges, when everything looks black, but we just read Ruth and we have in our brains, it's really, really bad. The train is, it looks like it's coming off the track, but God has not given up on his people yet. And 1 Samuel 1 picks up on that theme. So let's talk about the life story of Hannah. What does the scripture tell us about Hannah in these two chapters? We'll just begin with background. And that's really just one verse in our passage, 1 Samuel 1.1. 1, 1. 1 Samuel says, in the very first verse, there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Okay? You take that verse, just put it on pause for a minute. On your own, you can look at First Chronicles. I gave you the reference in First Chronicles. Provides a genealogy or some information about the family tree of this man that we meet here named Elkanah. And what we learn about Elkanah is that he was a Levite. That was his tribe. And within the tribe of Levi, he was a Kohathite. That was his clan. So we got 12 tribes. He falls into the tribe of Levi. And within Levi, you have these divisions, and he is part of the Kohathites. And you go back and you realize that Moses and Aaron were Kohathites. You go back and read in Numbers chapter 3 that it was the Kohathites who were given the responsibility when the people had the tabernacle and they're wandering around. It was the Kohathites whose job it was to carry that stuff around. You carry the tent. You carry the ark. Here are the very specific instructions that God wants you to do. Your job is to carry this tent around and to do it exactly like God wanted you to. Well, if you keep reading, you realize that eventually the people get into the promised land, right? They're not wandering around the desert anymore. And what seems to have happened is they took the tabernacle and they put it in Shiloh and it almost became a building of sorts. Maybe there were stones added to it or decoration or some sort of edifice. But the tabernacle stays still. So you say, what do the Kohathites do? There's nothing to carry anymore. They're not wandering anymore. And if you read in First Chronicles 6, you keep reading after the reference I gave you, it sounds like the Kohathites' job eventually became leading worship. Staying there in the tabernacle. They're not carrying it around anymore, but their job became leading worship. And so all of this just tells us about this family. Elkanah, and he's married to this woman named Hannah we're about to meet. And the text says, you may have noticed, that they live in the hill country of Ephraim. Okay? So just 
we're going back to Joshua and we're pulling all these strings together to figure out what we know about this family. When the people came in in the conquest, they all got a, an inheritance. They all got a piece of real estate except who? The Levites. And the Levites didn't get a specific territory. They got cities all the way through. All in all the different parts of Israel. You get this city, you get this city, you get this city. And this particular Levite lives in Ephraim, in the hill country of Ephraim, just north of Jerusalem. And so we're looking at a priestly family. That's the connection for Hannah. And it helps you understand why she would go up with Elkanah year after year after year to the temple or the tabernacle there in Shiloh. So first, her background. That's about all we know. Second, we'll call infertility. Infertility. Look at the text and let's read 1 Samuel 1, 2 down to verse 8. Text is talking about Elkanah and it says he had two wives. And anytime you read that in the Bible, just get ready for something to go wrong. It's, whatever follows is not going to be good. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Some Bible scholars look at that verse and they say, because Hannah is listed first, he probably married Hannah first. And we're not giving Elkanah an excuse for being a polygamist, but they say it's possible that when Hannah was not able to have children, that's when he decided to take a second wife. Or he may have just been a jerk and decided he needed two wives. We don't know. But he had two wives, Hannah and Penina, Penina had children. Hannah had no children. This man used to go up year by year from his city. His city was in the hill country of Ephraim to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, remember Eli is this last, one of these last judges. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord and they were rotten dudes. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Here's where the problems really, really set in. Because the Lord had closed her womb. You've read that phrase twice now. The Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And so let's just think about this for a minute. Verse uh, 3 down to verse 8 of what's happening here. You've got this family going up every year to worship. And as they go up, they get portions. Portions to offer as sacrifice and portions to eat at the, the celebration meal there at the tabernacle. And he gives the portions to Penina and to her kids. And look, I think Elkanah is pretty much a typical man trying to fix everything. And so his plan begins with, I'm going to give her a double portion. Part of that is because he loves her. But if you're reading the story, you realize part of it is because he feels bad for her, that she can't have kids. 
and I don't know the exact breakdown of how Hannah felt about all this. I would never presume to tell you how a woman felt about something. I'm just going to venture a guess, though. When you realize how much this grieved Hannah, the situation, that maybe there was a part of her that appreciated the double portion. At the same time, it may have just been a yearly reminder that you still don't have any kids. I don't think Elkanah meant to rub it in her face. And I'm not trying to throw him under the bus for being a fool. But I think for Hannah, that was probably a reminder. I'm getting the double portion. I know he loves me, but also I'm getting that because I don't have any kids. and That's on her mind and that's on her heart. Verse 5 says, the Lord closed her womb. Verse 6 says, the Lord closed her womb. I had lunch with a friend today who's in the process of raising support to be a missionary in Brazil. And he's traveling around visiting different churches. And he said, I was, uh, he was up in the panhandle of Texas and he visited a, a cowboy church in a rural area. And he said, man, it was just, it was the worst sermon I had ever heard. He said part of, the, part of the message was about tithing and how you should tithe. And then he said the other part of the message twisted into this weird health and wealth gospel about God only wants to bless you and he, will, he doesn't want anything bad to happen to you ever. So that if anything bad ever happens to you, it's not God, but it's your fault. And he said, I, I listened and I tried to figure out the connection of the tithing and the what he was saying with this, he said, he just said it was the worst sermon ever. And I, that was on my brain when I was studying this afternoon. And I thought, well, here it says the Lord closed her womb. He did it. The Bible isn't bashful about saying God did that. It doesn't say to you, well, God really wanted her to have children, but she was just such a sinner that he couldn't make it happen. Or God really wanted her to have children, but Satan was binding her somehow and wouldn't let it happen. The text has a very high view of God and his sovereignty and says, even this tragedy was 100% completely under his control. All of it. It tells you twice, the Lord closed her womb. Now, did she know that? Probably not. Did she understand what was going to happen later? No. Did she wrestle with why is this happening to me? She probably did. But the text is giving you information telling you that God was, was ultimately behind this. The last thing Elkanah tries to do is really, really not good. In verse 8, he tries to rationalize with his wife. And he tries to say to her, you shouldn't be so sad because you have me. And I bet that went over great with Hannah who'd wanted kids and you almost wonder what happened in verse 8b in between verse 8 and 9 did she smack him or did she slap him or did she roll her eyes or did she cry more the text doesn't tell us but Elkanah is he's trying to fix it so that's the the infertility stage next comes prayer prayer look with me at first Samuel 1 starting in verse 9 and let's read to verse 19. It says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed. 
And she prayed to the Lord. And she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. And you remember the quote we read that says she uses Yahweh 18 times. Every time you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. O Lord of hosts. She begins her prayer. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19 says, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And we'll stop right there at the end of verse 19. There's a, several things I want to point out to you about prayer and how Hannah prayed. And you do the homework. You do the thought work and the heart work about how should this translate into my life? How has this sort of prayer translated into my life? Do my prayers ever look anything like this at all? First of all, there's a lot of emotion involved in this. I don't know if you noticed all the words in the text but the text talks about deep distress and bitter weeping. And she's troubled in spirit. And she has great anxiety and great vexation. Listen, you will face suffering in life. Guaranteed. And it will not be beyond the sovereignty of God. Just like it wasn't for Hannah. God will be in complete control of all that happens to you. And in that suffering... Two things can happen. One, your suffering can push you away from God and harden your heart. Or, suffering can draw you closer to God and soften your heart. For Hannah, you see what it did to her. It softened her heart and it drew her closer to the Lord. She didn't turn away from God in anger. She didn't turn away from God in bitterness. She didn't throw some kind of pity party. But her heart was soft and she came to the Lord in prayer. I also want to point out to you when you're thinking about her prayer, prayer is not always a dignified thing. I know we think of prayer as something that's very formal. Maybe when you're at the table, everyone holds hands and you bow and it's very dignified. And in church, everyone gets quiet. We're going to pray. We're going to be you know, silent and reverent. And those things are good. But here's a woman praying and an outsider who doesn't know her well looks at her and he thinks... She's drunk. And I just wonder, in my life or in your life, has there ever been that kind of fervent prayer? 
where an outsider would look at you and be struck by how visibly shaken you were and what you were praying about. That you wanted God to do something so badly. You were being so honest before God in what your desires were and your heart, heart was that if someone were to look at you while you were praying, they might think that you were drunk or they might think that you were crazy. I want to point out to you that her prayer is not a selfish prayer. How do you know that? You know it's not a selfish prayer because she says, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you. All his life. She didn't say to God, God, I want you to give me a son so that I can go to his t-ball games and his preschool graduation and then I can be there at his first high school dance and then I can send him off to college and then I can be there and see him when he gets married and then I can be around for... She says, you give him to me and I'm going to give him back to you all the days of his life. It's not a selfish prayer at heart. There's a lesson about prayer here in that she prays silently. The text says she's praying from her heart. Doesn't have to be vocalized. Doesn't have to be verbalized. Doesn't have to be something you say out loud. The Lord knows our hearts. Psalm 139 says he knows the words on our tongue before they're ever formed by your vocal cords. He knows your heart. That's how she's praying. And then I think maybe... Maybe my favorite description of prayer in the whole Bible. Somebody said, what is prayer? This is what I like maybe more than anything else. 1 Samuel 1 verse 15, the very end. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's what she described prayer as. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. All too often we think of prayer as this is where I go ask God for stuff. This is where I come, you know, tell God all the things that I need. This is where I come to God and I get my sick list of people at church or family or work and I tick through everybody one at a time and heal them, heal them, heal them, do this, do this, do this, give me this, give me this, give me this, fix this, fix this, fix this. Thank you, you're the best, amen. Her view of prayer was not transactional. It was not necessarily based on I'm here to get something out of it. Ultimately, she's saying, I'm just pouring my heart out before God. For her, she understood prayer was about relationship. It's not about controlling God or manipulating God, but growing in relationship with God. And so she says to Eli, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Verse 18, did you notice verse 18? The woman went her way and she ate. Why is that detail important? Well, if you back up, it says she used to not eat. She would be so upset that she couldn't eat. She pours her soul out before the Lord, and then it says she went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. I don't think that this is a a grin and bear it verse. I don't think this is a suck it up, buttercup, things could be worse type verse. I think about a lady that was a member of one of the churches I pastored, and she got sick, really sick, and she suffered. And when I would visit her, the regular refrain off of her lips was, well, it could be worse. I guess I just got to grin and bear it. Pour your soul out before God. Be honest with Him. 
be real with him. It's not a grin and bear it type anything. She in her great distress and her great anxiety and a troubled spirit, all of these things, she just lays it out before the Lord. And when she's done, she's done. She has self-control to say, I've talked to God about that. She has a big enough view of God to understand he can do what he wants to do with that. And she leaves and she eats and her face is no longer sad. And verse 19, she worships before the Lord. There has been zero response from God at this point. God has not made a promise to her. God has not said nine more months, start the countdown. God has not said it's going to be great. You have no idea what's coming. Zero response. For all we know, it was one of those prayers that to Hannah felt like it bounced right off the ceiling and came back down. She does not have a child. She is not pregnant. Yet, she has self-control. She eats. Her face is no longer sad. And she worships the Lord with her husband. She's acknowledging, God, you haven't done anything in response to my request yet. You haven't given me what I've asked for. You're still worthy of my worship. Even if it doesn't happen the way I want it to happen, you still deserve my worship and my devotion. So that's the stage we'll call prayer. Next stage is Samuel. Samuel shows up. We left off in verse 19 where it says the Lord remembered her. Verse 20 says in due time Hannah conceived and she bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said I have asked for him from the Lord. And we'll keep reading through the end of this chapter. The man Elkanah and his, all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, and I have no idea what comes into your mind when you read that, until the child is weaned. In a, a Jewish culture, trying to translate this into modern day uh, English in 2018, what does that mean? It could probably be anywhere from 3 or 4 years old to 12 years old. Probably not older than 12. But he's a boy. Okay, He's not an infant. She says, until he's Weaned. As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And I'll just point out, this is, this is good, Elkanah. I don't know, maybe he's like a broken clock, and every now and then he's right. But this is pretty good. Because the Old Testament had a law that said, if a wife made a vow, essentially the husband could overrule it. He had this veto power over his wife's vows. That's in the Old Testament law. And his wife makes the vow, and he knows it's important, and he says, okay, do it. This is our custom. We've done it every year over and over and over and over and over again. That's the tradition. But if you've made this vow to the Lord, he wants her to keep it. May the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and a a flower a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. 
for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And the he in that last verse is Samuel. He worshiped the Lord there. So the text gives the Lord credit for her pregnancy. That's back up in verse 19 where it says the Lord remembered her and she brings this young child and she leaves him at the tabernacle. The last stage of her life that we read about in the Bible is again, surprise, surprise, prayer. She prays before she has a son and that's recorded and then she has a longer prayer in chapter 2. And we're going to read it and then very quickly I'm going to point out a few parts of this prayer that are worth noting. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. And she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. There you go. Let me give you a few things that uh, are worth noting in that prayer. In verse 1, she does not exalt in her heart because she has a son. She exalts in the Lord. She doesn't say, I am so glad that I finally got a son. That is not the source of her joy. That is not a little G God in her life that she thinks will make her happy. Even though she wants it and she desires it and she's honest about that, her exaltation and her joy is found in the Lord. That's right there in verse 1. Verse 2, she acknowledges God's holiness. There's no one like God. There is no one beside God. Verse 3 she knows that God knows everything. He's all-knowing, and she knows that God is the judge. She has good theology about who God is. Verse 4 down to 8, you just summarize all those verses, and you say God reverses fortunes. He takes the proud, and he humbles them. He takes the poor, and he exalts them. Like he reverses what seems to be reality on, on our level and on, on, in our experience. Verse 8 she talks about God establishing the earth. He's the creator. Verse 9, he's faithful to his people. 
verse 10. She talks about God being the judge again. And then she ends with this line that we're going to come back to. He will exalt the power of his anointed. Literally, of his Messiah. God will exalt the power of his Messiah. Or if you wanted to use the Greek word, you would say he will exalt the power of his Christ. So negatives and positives on on Hannah. The negatives are hard to find. There's not a lot here. So we'll just say this about Hannah. Hannah was a sinner. We know this because she suffered from the effects of the fall. She knew this and she offered sacrifices at the tabernacle. You understand when you've read from Genesis through the scriptures that barrenness was not part of God's original plan for his people. That was not in the beginning part of the package when God looked at everything and said, this is very good. Barrenness was not part of that. Barrenness is a result of the fall, along with all the other disasters and tragedies and sicknesses and illnesses and deaths that we experience now. And I just, you can look at Romans 5. You can trace Paul's logic. Here's Paul's logic in Romans 5. We know that all people are sinners because all people die, right? Adam's sin brought death into the world, and because everyone dies, we know that Adam's sin counts for everyone. Everyone's under this curse. Everyone is under the power of sin. And the fact that she experiences part of the effects of the fall is just a reminder she is a sinner. She's from Adam's line. She was born with a a wicked, depraved heart. Anything good in Hannah wasn't because of Hannah. It was because of God working in Hannah and working through Hannah. So she is a sinner. And we know that because she brings sacrifices every year to the tabernacle. Go back. You'll love this reference I gave you right here. I gave you the reference of the book of Leviticus. We're not going to read it tonight. You can do it on your own. The point of Leviticus is sacrifice. You mess up, you need to offer a sacrifice. You as a nation are sinful, well, there needs to be a sacrifice for that. You commit this type of sin, well, you need to have a sacrifice for that. And she participates in that system. She's not standing over in the corner with her arms folded saying, well, Eli, he's a jerk. My husband, he's kind of a doofus. I'm going to let them offer the sacrifices, but I don't need to take part in that. She's involved in it. That's part of her worship every year coming and offering these sacrifices and in offering the sacrifice what Hannah would have been saying is I deserve to die but the animal will die in my place a substitute will take my place and blood will be spilt it won't be mine but it'll be the blood of a substitute who takes my place so that's the negative here's the positive she was a devout woman whose life was marked by prayer worship faith and obedience Prayer, worship, faith, and obedience. What a great legacy to show up on the pages of the Bible and for the majority of the words that come out of your mouth to be a prayer. The thing that she's remembered for is praying. Those are the vast majority of her words recorded in these two chapters is prayer. Think about this comparison. I came across this Uh, in study this week, and I had never thought about this. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. What was her response to that? At one point, it was laughter. 
God said, you're going to have a baby, and she laughed. <laughs> yeah, right. Rebecca was barren, and if you go back and you read the text, this is Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. The text tells you that Isaac prayed for his wife. Doesn't tell you that Rebecca prayed. Did she? Well, we don't know. I'm just telling you what the text says. She was barren and her husband prayed. Rachel was barren. Now we're moving from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob with Rachel. Rachel was barren. And you can go back and read the story about Rachel. At one point, this is a 21st century paraphrase. Rachel says, if I don't have a kid, I'm going to die. I got to have a kid or I won't be able to go on. You look at those ladies, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, and then you come to Hannah, and what does she do? She pours her soul out before the Lord, and she worships, and then she cleans her face and she goes home. A completely different response than the women who came before her in Scripture. She vows and she keeps it. She believed that God could change her situation. She didn't necessarily presume that he would change her situation. But she came to him believing that he could. So she was a devout woman and her life was marked by prayer, worship, faith, and obedience. How does Hannah point us to Jesus? Let me give you two thoughts and we'll wrap up. Hannah's son, Samuel, who we'll talk about later, served as a prophet, a priest, and a ruler And her last prayer points us to the Messiah. I'm going to do my best to kind of tie these thoughts together. When you look at 1 Samuel 2, the end of verse 10, and you read that word, in most English translations it's the word anointed. You understand the Hebrew word is Messiah. It's the same word you'll find in Psalm 2. It talks about the Messiah, the anointed one, or the Christ. You find it here. Hannah's talking about the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three people who were anointed for their service. The prophets were anointed for their service. The priests were anointed and set apart for their service. And the kings were anointed when they took the throne. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. When you fast forward all the way to the New Testament, you read over and over again about Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one. And what we're to understand when we read that is, in ancient Israel, you've got these three offices separated, prophet, priest, and king. The prophet speaks to the people for God. The priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. And the king rules over the people on behalf of God. And you come to Jesus the Christ and you realize he fulfills all of those roles. He's the king of kings. The book of Revelation says. He's the great high priest. The book of Hebrews says. He is the prophet to come. The one that Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. He unites all of those roles. And I'm just telling you, you get a tiny preview of that in Samuel. Somebody who ruled over the people as a judge. Somebody who spoke to the people as a prophet. And somebody who spoke to God on behalf of the people as a priest. He functions in all of those ways. And so Hannah's son gives us a preview of the Messiah. And the last thing that she prays is exalt the power of his Messiah. So she's pointing us in that direction. Last, Hannah's song is echoed by Mary's, or by, echoed by Mary, excuse me, 
in the New Testament. And I'm going to let you look this reference up. When the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, she sings a song. And you can read it in Luke chapter 1. Almost all the things that Mary says in that song are echoes of what Hannah said in 1 Samuel 2. All the same themes, and I'll just tick through them quickly and you can go back and read it. Her worship is centered on God. It's not centered on, oh boy, I'm going to have a baby. It's centered on God for who he is. She talks about the holiness of God, just like Hannah talks about the holiness of God. Mary has this section in the middle of her song where she talks about God being the reverser of fortunes. He lifts up the the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted, and he brings down the proud and the arrogant. Hannah sang the same thing. She talks about God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Hannah has this same idea that God is faithful. He will be faithful to his promises. And you see this song when you read it in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've read Hannah, you've read 1 Samuel, bells should be going off. You should be saying, Mary didn't just totally make this up out of thin air. Mary's essentially praying or singing the same things that Hannah sang about. She knew her Old Testament. And she understood this idea that a Messiah was coming. God was going to exalt the power of the Messiah. And when this angel says the Messiah is going to be born, Mary puts the the dots together. She connects them. And she said, what am I going to sing about? Well, I'm going to sing about the exact same things that Hannah sang about. And it's a pretty neat thought to think about Hannah singing this song, or I guess we should say praying this prayer after she has Samuel. And thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, someone essentially copies it. And the someone is Mary. Celebrating the birth of Jesus, who's going to be the Messiah. So that's Hannah. 